Hey, and welcome to the Hashtag Angels podcast, where we bring you conversations about the latest tech trends and the people inventing and shaping them. I'm Jana Messerschmidt, and this week I'm joined by my co-host and fellow Hashtag Angels partner, Jessica Varelli. To be like, I'm going to risk everything, and I am going to recruit people to join me on this mission because I'm just so determined to see this come to life. And we sit down with Adrian Ayun. Some point you got to ask yourself, like, how absurd is it that in this day and age we can get the entirety of the world's information via Google and a smartphone to the middle of India for roughly free, but we can't get basic healthcare there? Like, why? What went wrong? Adrian is the co-founder of Forward, a tech-centric healthcare company that we backed at Hashtag Angels. We talk about why studying psychology and philosophy are relevant for developing consumer tech products, how he'd reimagine building cities today, building a healthcare company during the craziness of a global pandemic, and the invaluable guidance he's received from Marissa Mayer throughout his career. All right, let's jump in. I think we met a decade ago when you were probably more uh, when you were building Wavy uh, and in the process ended up selling it to Google. But I met you through that process when I was at Twitter. Um, And now Jana and I and a bunch of the hashtag angels are all investors in forward. So we've had a chance to get to know you through a couple different chapters of your career and are super excited to have you on the pod. So thank you for joining us. Not at all. I'm excited to be here. It's crazy that I haven't seen you guys in so long. Thank you, COVID. But it's good to see you at least virtually behind some microphones for uh, for a change. Exactly. Um, so maybe a good starting point. Um, will you just go back in time and tell us how you got interested in tech and startups and entrepreneurship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess my story of getting into tech is probably an interesting one. Um, I was one of the, uh, you know, I came, I came to the United States when I was fairly young, but I was born in France and I came over and I had this like incredibly thick French accent. And so, you know, I probably wasn't the most popular kid in school. I think I was the other one. And, uh, and so, you know, what do you do when you're a kid is like, you, you know, you kind of bury yourself either in books or you bury yourself in sports. And for me, because I couldn't really communicate very well, I just buried myself in computers. And so from a really young age, I was like, oh, these things speak my language. They're kind of awesome. And then as I kind of started getting older, um, when I was about 13, I ended up starting a company. And you know, it's one of these things where like when you're 13, you start a company, everybody like rolls their eyes. And frankly, like, of course, right? It's you're, you're, you're a kid, you're being an idiot. Um, and then somehow, like the, the company I started with, uh, I started with some folks who were much older than me. They were kind of in their 30s and 40s. And so somehow that company went for like seven, eight, nine, almost 10 years. And by the time I was about kind of 22, it was kind of a real company, you know, like we had real clients, <laughs> et cetera. We were, we, we started as like, oh, let's just build some websites. Then it was like, actually, no, let's kind of run our own data centers and stuff like that. And so I ended up um, kind of selling it right after college. And then I was kind of a little hooked on the startup thing. Like I liked it, but I was also like, I don't know the non-startup thing. So I went and I worked at Microsoft and I was like, oh my God, this is like the most amazing thing I've ever seen. They build software for like hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. And, uh, and I was so enthralled with the place that I lasted 11 months at Microsoft. And I was like, <laughs> I need to go back to the startup world. <laughs> like Microsoft's awesome, but it's not for me. Um, so I left, I started, uh, I started Wavy, which was, um, which was in the kind of artificial intelligence space, basically teaching computers to read and understand language. My, uh, my dad by trade is a linguist. And so I was always really fascinated with language and, you know, that was kind of my foray of getting into startups again. And that, at that point, that was really like more of a Silicon Valley startup, you know, like had investors, had venture dollars, had an exit, that sort of stuff. And then tried my hand again at Google. Okay, Adrian, I have to ask you a question. I mean, when you start your first company at 13, yeah. were you at all savvy around like structuring the cap table? Like what did you learn from that experience? Oh, that- no, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so basically from a young age, I just really liked building things. Right. And so, um, so I was volunteering at my, uh, at my, I guess, elementary school at that point all the time to like help them with the network, help them with stuff. You, you got to remember like the subtext is I didn't really have any friends and so I needed to fill my time somehow. <laughs> and, and that kind of director of technology, the guy who was running, uh, the, the tech, uh, show there at the, uh, at the school was like, Hey, um, uh, we've got a budget 
to build the school's website. Can you go find somebody to build the school's website? So I came back three days later and I was like, well, I built the school's website. Like I didn't need anybody. I just did it. And I wasn't, I didn't care about money. Like, uh, it wasn't really a thing. I was just like, Hey, this is cool. I didn't, I just learned about websites. And then, um, you know, a bunch of other places, a bunch of other schools started asking us to build like, Hey, who built your website? And he was like, well, this kid did. And I was like, no worries. I'll just do it for them. So I started doing websites for a bunch of schools free of charge, not like charging anybody. Um, and I remember I just like building things. Right. And then, then what kind of happened was a bunch of other companies started, you know, going to that guy and being like, Hey, will you build my website? And so he's Mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, we should start a company. So, uh, so he comes up to me and he's like, do you want to be partners in a company? I'm like, as long as I get to build things, sure. I don't understand companies, whatever, go for it. So, I was like CTO. Uh, he was CEO, which is a bit of a bit absurd thing to say in a two-person company. But you know, I felt pretty awesome. <laughs> and you're like 15 and, at this point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, basically. And so, um, and so we're like building all these websites, which actually turns out we were making pretty good money. And then one of the things we realized is we were we were building the sites, which is kind of a consulting service, and then we were paying another host to like host the websites. And at some point we got pretty savvy and we're like, wait a minute, why don't we host the websites? So then we started kind of getting our own servers, built up to our own data center. And like, by the end, this was like a real company, right? Um, We had a whole bunch of people. We had, you know, I don't know, some absurd amount of clients. Um, and, uh, and that was kind of my first foray into like, you know, actually what a company is, but in many ways, like I was on the technical side, right? I was an engineer. I was, you know, running the systems. I did not understand cap tables. I didn't understand any of that stuff. I got a fairly rude awakening a little later on in life um, uh, when, you know, after college, basically, I was like, okay, I've finished college. I'm starting to learn about this venture world thing. Let's raise some money. Let's go all in. And uh, and my partners were a few of them, actually, um, by this point, were like, well, this thing is like making money hand over fist. We've got a good life. We're on the golf course every day. Like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't work for me. I want to go all in. Let's make this big. Let's see if we can make this like, you know, uh, an enormous thing. And so we kind of got into a fight. And then I had this really fun day where I was um, I was fired. I was uh, removed from the board and I had all my access revoked in one day. And that's when you start to really learn about business. And that's when you start to learn that like <laughs> who you get into business with actually kind of matters. Um, uh, so uh, as you two both know, because you're uh, investors in my company, I'm like a control freak now. Now I'm like, no, we don't give up control on anything because I've just got, you know, you know how we all have that like deep, dark thing for me, it's that like one day I'm gonna get fired from my own company. So at Ford, I cannot be fired. Damn it. Um, uh, and so, uh, so that's a little of when I started to realize that like if you actually want to have a lot of impact, um, it helps to know a bunch of different skills. Um, mm. So, so I've never really been interested in business, but at that point, I had to learn about structures and governance and cap tables and all that sort of nonsense, you know. Well, I noticed also when you were doing your undergrad, you double majored in both CS and psychology, which to me is like the dream major, like yeah. for developing consumer software. So here's what I'll tell you. The thing that it, when you go and you look at psychology, probably the most valuable parts of it are not the things that they think they really understand very well. Minus like the modern stuff, like, you know, cognitive neuroscience and fMRIs, that stuff's amazing. But let's go back to the like, you know, um, let's go all the way back to like, you know, when the Greeks talked about like the types of love, um, I always found this really amazing, right? Like agape and eros and, and, um, and it's like the types of love of like a stranger the types of love of family or, or the types of love of like, you know, you and your partner. And I always thought like, this seems kind of arbitrary. This seems kind of bullshit, right? Like, like how did somebody come up with there's four types of love? How do we know there's not five types or seven types or two types? But the really amazing thing about it is that it gives you a vocabulary, right? And so before you were just like, there's love. And now you're like, well, at least there's these categories. Even if I didn't get them right, we can start having a conversation. And the thing that psychology does really well is they understand the problems. They have no clue. Like the field has no clue about the solutions. But just knowing the problems is really interesting, right? So so when you look at things like how do groups behave or you look at things like what are people's motivators, it's really interesting. In fact, in some ways – Um, If people want good consumer instincts, I might 
go back to first principles a little or go back in history and just say, just study philosophy, right? So if you mm-hmm. look at like, mm-hmm. if you look at all the philosophers from way back in the day, um, uh, and, and I'll rag on the world of philosophy for a little, which is like modern philosophers are just repeating everything from back in the day. So just read the original <laughs> stuff. But it's actually really cool, right? Because you you quickly start to learn that like we are at our core, like very, very kind of basic beings. Like we've got some incentives. We want some relationships. We've got things that, that scare us. And if you look kind of the best consumer products, they're always tapping into something pretty core in humanity, right? Um, whether it's the FOMO, whether it's the love, whether it's like, and then you can try and modernize it and you can just say, okay, but what is that in, to, in kind of today's world, right? In today's world, you can even measure this with like, well, this product causes me to get a dopamine hit or a serotonin hit. So, so there is kind of science behind it. Um, uh, and I think that like just understanding like some basic elements about people and even just spending time thinking about it might get people pretty far in kind of the consumer sphere, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of our other hashtag angel co-founders, Chloe, talks about her lens into tech was actually always through anthropology. Like she was always curious about just how humans and cultures evolve and interact. And that was kind of the lens she, or the the thread she always followed that led her into working in tech and being fascinated by it. Um, I have a, a totally different question, but also about just stuff you've learned along the way. So your, your um, prior company, Wavy, you ended up selling to Google. Um, what did you learn in the acquisition process? Yeah, I'd say uh, I'd say a couple things. So, so we, you know, I didn't start I didn't start Wavy with the intent to sell. Um, for me, it was you know it was frankly I, I don't think I'd ever start anything with the intent to sell. It makes life pretty boring. Um, I started it with the intent to you know uh, displace all of uh, all of you know the existing search engines, aka I was hoping to acquire Google one day. It just you know, <laughs> didn't work out quite the way I wanted. But, um, but so the first thing I'd say is like, I don't know, I'd maybe encourage anybody whose goal it is to sell to maybe have higher dreams. Um, the, like usually people who are starting companies are in a really fortunate position, right? Like we can take Mm -hmm. the pay cuts. We can, you know, we can go raise money. We've got, we can hire people. So, so you get all this talent together. And if like, if your only goal of getting all that talent together is to make a bunch of money, I just think it's a waste of humanity. Um, and so I always just say like, Hey, if it's a backup strategy, sounds good, but like, hopefully we can, we can do something bigger. Um, now, when we when we did sell, I'll tell you that like there's and, and many people have said this before, but it's very true. There's basically people who want to do deals and people who don't want to do deals. And if they want to do a deal, everything's going to work pretty well. And if they don't want to do a deal, everything's not going to work pretty well. And in our process, we kind of had both. Um, we were really lucky. Apple and Google um, really wanted to buy us. Um, uh, and you know what? Every single roadblock along the way, they were highly incentivized to solve. <laughs> and then we had some <laughs> other folks that we spoke to who who we were trying to get to buy it and didn't want to buy us. And, um, and in that circumstance, it was like every single tiny thing just became an issue. And so at some point it's like, don't, um, don't force it. If it's, uh, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. People often think it's like, Oh, that one little thing that pushed us over the edge is like, no, it's not. I assure you. Um, uh, the other thing that I found was, was, um, you can really tell a lot about people um, when they're dealing when they're doing deals, right? And so, so I kind of always think about like which side do you want? So if you're selling a car to someone, negotiate the hell out of it, right? Like you're never going to see this person again. Whatever, it's a one-time transaction. If you're selling to someone, like you're about to like be part of their family, right? And if those people are treating you during the process like like you're um, like they're selling you a car that's probably a pretty bad sign of kind of the culture of the place. Um, and I will say, um, uh, I, you know, I, I think Google does many things well and many things terribly, but, uh, but I will say that, uh, the folks who were involved in the acquisition process were fantastic and they're actually friends of mine to this day. So I, I really enjoyed it. Right on. Yeah. Jess, I mean, you, you've ran acquisitions at Twitter for a long time. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think Adrian's right on. Like the conversation's with entrepreneurs around buying their companies tend to always, the best ones in my opinion, always start with, tell me about what you set out to build and your ambition and dream for this company. You know, and you tend to try to find people that have incredible ambition and started this company through some set of life experience that led them to be like, I'm going to risk everything and I am going to recruit people to join me on this mission because I'm just so determined to see this come to life. Um, 
And an acquisition can sometimes be a vehicle to realize that vision. And in my experience, there were sometimes deals we did where they sort of took a swing and a miss. Like they they went out trying to build a consumer product, didn't quite get that lightning in a bottle adoption, but there was an opportunity with Twitter to leverage more distribution and bring that product to life. Or in other cases where they built an independent business or a product, but you know, together it it was just a bigger potential outcome. Um, so that's that early alignment we tried to look for. And to Adrian's point, you can tell pretty early on if both sides are sort of excited about where that future leads together, that deal's going to happen. But if one side's always pitching, the other side's, you know, slow to follow up, doesn't engage, ask a lot of questions, like that's just a deal that's probably not meant to be. So yeah, I think, I think Adrian, we've lived it on different sides, but I think my experience is pretty similar to yours. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So, okay. So you get acquired by Google. What is the first year look like? I know that you were on the founding yeah. team of Sidewalk Labs, which yeah. for any listeners who don't know what that is, it's basically reimagining cities, like if they were built from the ground up today. But um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that first chunk of time. It was kind of an interesting experience. So so I spent my first year actually before Sidewalk. I spent it in, well, I kind of, we were an AI startup and, uh, and I thought I was getting acquired into kind of the AI division at Google. It was slightly a bait and switch. I get there and I'm like, Hey, we're all the AI people. And they're like, well, you know, we're kind of starting that division right now. Um, and so you want to help? So, so we, we took this division from roughly not existing to about 600 people over the course of like 12 months. It was awesome. Right. Put AI back on the map. Right. You remember like, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, everybody's like, Oh, machine learning. That's, that's dumb. That's dead. And now it's like on every street corner. So we really, you know, we spent about a billion dollars in 12 months, bought DeepMind. It was awesome. And then I was like, okay, but this is very classic Google. Like we're building tech for the sake of tech. Now I actually want to do something with it. And as you can imagine, um, I really care about search as a problem. Um, So I started going up to the search team. We were like sitting right next to them. We were we were almost part of their division. And I went up to them like, okay, guys, time to start changing everything. And um, and one of the big issues at Google is that Um, They had been working on search for, I don't know, at that point, roughly 15 years. And so they thought that the future of search was search. And if you think about it, the future of search is likely not search. In fact, search uh, searches are just getting degraded every day by assistance, by apps, um, by kind of ambient services. But there was such uh, there was such kind of a view of we are the solution, not the problem. That that now at Ford, one of the things we do is we teach people problems matter more than solutions. Never attach yourself to the solution. Search is a solution. Mm. Keep asking what is the problem because the problem problems don't uh, problems don't tend to change that much. Solutions tend to change all the time. In twenty five mm-hmm. years, search is not going to be the paradigm we use. And so I got really frustrated, and uh, and I uh, I was like this place isn't going to let me change it. It's kind of a good old boys club to some extent, right? You haven't been here for 15 years sort of thing. So, so you're just not going to be given the right to like go after all this anyway. So, um, so I did the classic Adrian and after 11 months I quit. And then, um, uh, I tried to make it to 12. I promised myself I'd make it to 12. In fact, I had a huge incentive to make it to 12 and I still didn't. And, uh, and then what happened was, um, on, uh, a lot, I'd gotten to know a lot of people there. And so, um, a couple of the SVPs, um, that I went to kind of say bye to that were really awesome folks. They all went and I guess told Larry, um, Hey, Adrian's leaving and you should talk to him about why he's leaving. So I go, uh, I go on a walk with Larry. Um, and, uh, and he goes, well, okay, why are you leaving? And this is to be clear, this is literally my last day. I've like turned in my laptop. I've <laughs> like, you know, I've handed off my team. I'm like, I'm out. Right. And so my stance is, well, okay, you asked, I'm going to give you the truth. <laughs> and, and I basically kind of like, maybe not so kindly ripped into him. And I was like, well, this place isn't innovative. Um, and he's like, what are you talking about? We've built maps, we've built search, we've built ads, we've built this. And I was like, and, and, you know, if you think about it, Google has seven best in class products, right? Like really seven world worldwide, like billion user kind of products. And I was like, yeah, but they were either all built like 10 or 15 years ago, or they've been acquired. And so like, we don't actually do fundamentally interesting things anymore. Um, and after I kind of was talking to him about this for five or 10 minutes, um, he pauses and he goes, I agree with everything you're saying. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is kind of weird, right? <laughs> and he's like, um, and he basically said, look, at this scale, it's incredibly hard to keep innovating. I was like, okay, sounds good. You know more about that than I do, but I'm out. <laughs> and he goes, 
Uh, he goes, no, I have some ideas of how we could innovate better um, that I'd like to work with you on. And, uh, and so he basically was like, look, tell me what you want to do um, and, uh, and let's figure out how to do it. And I started coming up with all sorts of like, here's what I want search to be. Here's what I think the future of phones are, et cetera. And he goes, well, here's the catch. It's actually too hard for us to innovate in the domains we're already in. So think outside of that. And so he kind of gave me this like weird interviewee kind of thing. He's just like, he's like, tell me what you think off the top of your head is the future of education. And I've thought about a lot of these industries. So I just start rambling. He goes, great. Now it's the future of uh, air travel. I ramble. And then he goes, we should work together. And so we spent, um, we basically spent the weekend um, and mind you, I had like already quit on that Friday. Like that was my last day. And we spent the weekend, we spent a lot of time trying to say, how would we actually go structure a way where we could go after these things? So I quit on a Friday. I rejoined uh, Google on a Monday, but at this point I, uh, I was no longer in search. Now I was working with Larry. Um, I, I literally, you know, grabbed an office right next to him. Um, and, uh, a couple of people were leaving Google with me, um, to go start, uh, to go start a company. And so we said, okay, well, why don't we just, uh, all stay and kind of, and, and this is what in essence became alphabet, right? And so the idea of alphabet was we have, uh, we have uh, a lot of smart people. We got a hell of a lot of money. So let's just go after startups that kind of only Google could go after, right? Huge problems in the world. Startups where you need maybe a billion or two billion of, uh, of funding. And the company that I was leaving Google at that point to start was uh, a company to go build cities. And here's the kind of funny thing about that, right? If you go around Silicon Valley and you say, I want to build a city, people kind of look at you like you're crazy, which is weird <laughs> because like, if you say you want to go to Mars, people are like, of course, right? But, but what's also <laughs> kind of funny is, it just shows you how digital we are in our, in our, in the Valley in that, like, we really don't think about the fact that, well, well, you know, thousands upon thousands of cities have been created in your lifetime. Right. So it's like, why is creating one more just ever so hard? So what we decided to do was not ditch that company. We decided to bring it into Google and, uh, and it became one of the alphabet companies. But that's kind of what I ended up spending my next few years doing was just saying like, what are the problems we can go after? what companies can we start? And frankly, it was, it was awesome. It was really fun. So I'm so curious because there's so much discourse right now around San Francisco and the Bay Area and like all of the broken parts of our city um, and obviously migration to other areas. What would you do if you were going to build, re rebuild San Francisco now? What are yeah. some of those learnings? Yeah. So, so one of the things that you quickly realize <clears throat> is the the probably the biggest problem of cities is 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 merely the rate of iteration. Mm -hmm. And so then you start saying like, look, whatever you're going to come up with today, and people always have some great idea, like I think we should put a bridge here, I think we should change this law, whatever it is, it's wrong. And that's the mentality we have in startups, right? The mentality we have in startups is it's purely iterative. Whatever we ship today, we know is going to be wrong. We're going to learn. We're going to do better. We're going to do better. And think of the compounding effect of that. The compounding effect's enormous, right? Because it's, you know, you go yeah. log into your wealth front account and it's just like, hey, compound interest, boom, you're going to be a trillionaire in 30 years, right? Well, you want cities that get that amazing. And so the number one thing that you do when you say, how do I design a city, is you think about how do I not lock myself into things? How do I mm -hmm. just allow us to change? So let me just give you an example of this. So let's pretend that uh, we're creating a city uh, um, in some you know, random, uh, random new land, uh, Greenfield land. We create a city and we say, hey, you can move here, but here's the deal. You don't get to own property. And some people like, kind of don't like that. But think about why that's really interesting, right? Because if you say you can only rent property, and in fact, we're going to go even a step further and say that everybody's rent um, uh, lease period ends on the same day. So every third year, all leases end. If you come in halfway through, you only get an 18-month lease. Now, why is that interesting? Well, think about what you and I are all doing right now. We go and we buy a home and then somebody wants to build something right next to our home and we're like, no, 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 don't screw it up. This is what I got. <laughs> so we are the past. We're the legacy. We're the problem, right? And there might be some better new world, but we're preventing it from being created. Now let's, now let's apply that to the built environment. So today we build, uh, we build homes in a very expensive way, right? Homes, buildings, whatever it is. Now you, you have to start saying, well, 
Why is that bad? But again, in the past, we're like, it hey, wouldn't it be great to build this really tough? It could survive 100 years. But again, a startup would never do that. We'd never ship a piece of code that we want to last 100 <laughs> years, right? And so how can, you, how can you think about that is really simple. What's it take to build, to build homes that you don't care if you tear down every two or three years? And so you start kind of unraveling that. And one of the things you quickly realize is the expensive part of our homes is, is the structure. But why does it have to be so structural? It's going to sound super counterintuitive, but it's because of wind. So, so rain, not that hard to prevent, uh, to kind of protect against, but wind. So in San Francisco, you have to, uh, you have to protect against what's called a one in a hundred year event. So this thing happens one in, once every hundred years and around where I am right now, it's about 80 mile an hour wind. That's, that means you got to build really tough buildings, tough buildings equals expensive buildings. So now ask yourself, is there a way that I could withstand that, that 80 mile an hour wind, but create really inexpensive buildings. So what we iterated to was, and this sounds a little sci-fi, but imagine putting an enormous bubble over a city. So separating out the infrastructure that lives in every building and just creating it once. So we created um, a bubble out of what's called ETFE, a very, very lightweight plastic. It's basically transparent. It looks like the transparencies you had in school when you were young, but but you know you couldn't even stab it with a knife sort of thing. It's really strong. And imagine putting that over a city. So it just protects a city from the elements. Now inside, you could build homes and you could reconfigure them every year or two. And that starts to get really interesting, right? So you can think about this at, at everything from kind of the physical layer all the way up to the legislative layer, right? Like imagine if every single rule, every law that passed could only survive one, two, three years. Now you start getting into a world where we're constantly trying to innovate. And that's the biggest thing that I would try and change in a city. It's not any one thing, because I just presume we're going to get them wrong. It's the process upon which we think about the city. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I mean, your, your comment about optimizing for iteration and something that's actually less durable because it allows you to, to iterate. I think Elon has spoken a tiny bit about uh, when prompted how he imagines like governance on Mars. And he actually talks about this. He says laws by default would decay and you'd have to affirmatively continue them so that you don't end up with legislative um, rings. Yeah. Uh, cruft basically of stuff that, yeah, it's just a totally different framework. Yeah. And, I'm, yeah. I'm, and I'm sure there's externalities that we haven't covered, but it's just, it just flips your whole, the whole way and first principles that you think about some of this stuff. I also feel like we've completely come full circle as to why you liked CS and not computer engineering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Adrian doesn't want to build those hundred year surviving buildings. Yeah. Um, but maybe we could pivot to it um, to talk about your big swing now with Forward. You know, because you, you chose to build um, a tech centric healthcare company, but you have to deal with real world problems, real people problems physical spaces, a digital network. It's a little bit of everything. Um, so maybe, you know, what was your inspiration and what surprised you along the way? And maybe yeah. also for some of our listeners that may not know what Forward is, maybe just give a brief explainer of what Forward is. Yeah. So, so we're a vertically integrated healthcare system, which means we're not just taking a slice of healthcare. We're trying to take the entire uh, healthcare system and build it from the ground up, right? So we do everything from our own hardware to our own software to uh, you know processing your blood, employing the doctors, building the locations. We don't work with insurance. We are direct to consumer. We literally run Ford University to retrain everybody in how to operate in our system. So it's incredibly complex. Now, let me kind of give you a sense of, of what it is and why we're working on it. So when I was at Google, um, my, uh, my older brother who lives out in New York, he had a heart attack and, um, and I, I had not really paid attention to healthcare, frankly, like most people, right. I was, I was in my, I guess, thirties and, and, you know, I don't know, in your thirties, you're barely starting to think about that sort of stuff. And I always just kind of presumed like you hear healthcare is awful. You hear healthcare is awful, but you always presume like whatever, what, you know, if the shit hits the fan, there's always some good tech out there, right. It's just maybe not universally accessible yet, but I'm sure there's some good stuff. And, and so I was kind of by his side when he, when he was going through that. And what I saw was like doctors with clipboards and post-it notes. I saw them take, just constantly take a stethoscope to my brother. And I remember I, uh, I want, I'm an engineer, so I wanted to know what is a stethoscope. So I bought one for myself and I cut it open like any good engineer would. 
and and it was hollow it was literally hollow and i was like no way they scammed me i bought a fake stethoscope damn amazon no it just turns out that's actually what a stethoscope is you know when you were a kid and you like took a glass to your parents door to like listen what was saying what they were saying on the other side that's what a stethoscope is so i'm like how is it that we wake up in the year 2021 and we're, when you go to a doctor the first thing they use is a stethoscope like literally a hollow tube from the 1800s and so i i just realized like there is nothing here. Like there is no technology. It's, it's abysmal. And so, so then I started to just kind of pay a little more attention to healthcare. And what I started to realize is like, in many ways, the entire system is like kind of broken. Um, and, and you kind of know this, right? So let's just take a step back. There's about 7.6 billion people on this planet. Less than 2 billion of them have access to any form of real care. At some point, you got to ask yourself, like, how absurd is it that in this day and age, we can get the entirety of the world's information via Google and a smartphone to the middle of India for roughly free, but we can't get basic health care there? Like, why? What went wrong? When you peel back layers of the onion, one of the things you quickly realize is healthcare is predominantly a labor-based industry. And with all due respect to doctors, it just turns out the $200,000 a year doctors don't scale very well to the middle of India and the middle of Rwanda, right? And so what we need to do is we need to take healthcare from being predominantly a labor-based industry to being predominantly a technology-based uh, industry. Because if we can do that, if we can augment doctors with body scanners, sensors, algorithms, we can drive the cost down, scale healthcare out to the masses, right? And that's what we want to do. We want to build the first at scale healthcare system. Now, when you think of scale in the world of, uh, of tech, you're used to Google with 3 billion users, Facebook and Apple with 2 billion. I mean, that's real scale. When you think of scale in the world of healthcare, what comes to mind? Well, it's Kaiser. So Kaiser has about 11 million lives. So it's less than 3% of the United States. If Kaiser was a tech company, you would have never heard of it, and you certainly wouldn't have the app on your phone. So the first thing that we said is like, mm -hmm. this has to change, right? And so we set out, we started forward and we said, okay, just think about healthcare and like, think about what matters. Well, the first thing that matters is, you know, there's so much, there's so much technology in the world of healthcare around what I, what I like to call heroics, right? You just had a heart attack. What do we do? You just figured out you have cancer. What do we do? And, um, imagine, imagine if like, the first time that we, uh, the first time that we told you that your car had a problem was uh, was right after your brakes gave out and you had an accident. You'd be pretty pissed. You'd be like, "That's a shitty product, right?" Okay, well, well, why is it that the first time we're dealing with people's health is when they're, you know, in my brother's case, he was sitting in an ambulance in the middle of having a heart attack? Like that's just absurd. So the first thing that you realize is you need to go way more towards preventing things than reacting to things. But now ask yourself, like, why? Why does the current healthcare system not try, not try to prevent things. So, so ask yourself this. So when you were at Twitter, you were at any of these companies, like how often did your, did your company come around and be like, Hey, it's flu season. Will you do me a favor and go get your flu shot? Like all the time. Right. But they didn't come around and say, Hey, Janet, will you sequence your DNA to understand the heart disease or cancers you might have in your fifties and sixties? Now, why? Why is it? Well, it's really simple, right? It's like the average person's with their employer for about, oh, I don't know, two, two and a quarter years in the Bay Area. So what they're thinking is if you get the flu, I'm out a couple of days of work, you know, out a few hundred bucks, let's go ahead and make sure she gets the flu shot. On the other hand, if we, if we run that genetic sequence and we figure out that, you know what, you are at risk of developing heart disease, that's actually going to cost us money, right? Like we've got to start preventing that now. And they're like, whatever, screw that. Let's ignore it. That's the next guy's problem. And so we've built an entire healthcare system where the incentives are all wrong and you see it, right? And so what we're trying to do at Ford is really, really, really simple. We just want to, we just want to take doctors, equip them with the best technology and work on preventing things in you that are going to happen in the future so that ideally you live a little longer than the two years that your employer cares about, you know? So does that kind of give you a little kind of framing? It does. I know also you've, you've scaled with a physical footprint. So there are forward clinics in San Francisco, I think LA, maybe DC, you've, you've got a physical footprint all over, but I think you've also invested a lot in telemedicine. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit around like, you know, as COVID hit and there's just this incredible heightened need for care and information Will you talk to us about how telemedicine fits into this? Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, so here's one of here's one of kind of the interesting things. So 
So we've scaled a bunch, right? Um, and in many ways, we're, you know, in the year 2020, you like everybody was like telemedicine, 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 and now it's carrying over and like telemedicine's the future. And um, and in some ways, we're kind of like the odd duck out, right? We're like, well, we're also building locations, right? And this makes us, I don't know, either look very, very smart or very, very stupid. We'll find out in about a decade. But just take a step back and just think about this from from uh, from first principles. Do you actually believe that healthcare is going to be like, you know, telemedicine only? Do you do, like? Are we going to be delivering babies and doing open heart surgery via Zoom call? Because if so, I'm I should go buy a hell of a lot of Zoom stock. Um, um, and so I just don't I don't buy that. Healthcare is physical, and anybody who actually runs a healthcare system will tell you, yeah, no shit, it's very very physical. That doesn't mean that there's not also uh, digital portions, but I will say that like. If the big innovation in 2020 that we're all jumping up and down for is FaceTime with your doctor, we're screwed, right? Like, like that's bad, right? We got to do better than that, right? And mm -hmm. so, so what do we do? Well, one of the things that we do is, yes, we're expanding our physical footprint and uh, and and pretty aggressively. Like we we just launched in Seattle, Chicago. Um, we're about to launch in Boston, Miami. We're in San Jose, San Diego, New York, D.C., L.A., Glen, uh, Glendale, Orange County. I'm sure I'm missing one of my children, but I love my children all the same. I, I promise. <laughs> and so um, and so, yeah, we're expanding. But think of it as like, why are you expanding? Well, in some ways, you want healthcare to be everywhere, right? Because one of the big mistakes that we make in, in the world of healthcare today is we think of healthcare as like the repair shop for humans, right? It's like, you get sick, you go in, I don't know, once, twice a year, sounds good. But you know that's not how your body works, right? Your body, your body's working like your body's developing all the time. And so we need to be with it all the time. So in some ways you want for it everywhere. And part of that means, yes, you know, expanding our, our locations, but part of it means putting sensors on your body in your home. It kind of means being everywhere, right? And that's kind of one of the that's kind of one of the things that 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 most people are kind of missing. Like when you go to these telemedicine services, I love it. Like go play with mine, right? And you know, you get on a video call and you tell them some symptoms and they're like, oh, that sounds bad. You should really go see a doctor. And you're like, I thought I was talking to a doctor. Like, <laughs> like thanks, guys. Right. And so so what are we doing? Well, the whole system of Ford, like the thing that we've been launching a bunch recently is we've developed what these what we call these doctor led programs. Right. So you guys have, have done baselines of Ford. So you know how this works. Right. You come in, we collect a whole bunch of information from our uh, using our body scanner, blood test, gene sequencing. And we collect, I don't know, about 500 kind of data points about you. You have to explain what the body scanner is for listeners who've never seen the body scanner. Yeah, you should. Yeah, it's kind of it's pretty cool. So the body scanner is, um, I don't know, imagine, uh, imagine uh, Apple made uh, made something that was, you know, not just the size of your wrist, but tried to scan your whole body. So it's absolutely beautiful. It's this thing that you kind of walk up to. And it um, and it uses a bunch of sensors, all non invasive, all non radiative to to basically try and understand what's going on with your body. So it uses various forms of light, for example, it's called red light spectroscopy. To shine light through your hand, look at how blood is flowing, it gives us measures of things like your lung health, obviously, you know, your height, your weight, things like that. But but the idea is that we're starting to build kind of a model of you. And in fact, one of the cool things that uh, that we're working on releasing pretty soon is it actually, uh, and I don't know if you two have seen this, it actually now can spin you around in a circle. And it takes a full kind of millimeter precision model of your body that you see on the screen in front of you. So we can kind of start start measuring all your body, looking at how it's changing over time. So we use things like the body scanner. We use things like um, we actually run our own on-site um, uh, kind of think of it as mini quest. So we take your blood. We can get the results back into the exam room usually in about 12 minutes or so. Um, uh, we can even sequence your DNA. And the idea is we want to build the richest profile that we can about you. And then what you and your doctor do is you kind of figure out like, what are the programs that make sense for you? So maybe you're me, you've got your genetics, say you're at super high risk for heart disease, as we know from, from my brother, right? So we have a heart health program where basically my doctor and I can go deep to understand my heart, right? We do a heart risk analysis, we do blood tests, we do weekly at home monitoring of my, my uh, blood pressure and some other measures. And then what we're doing is we're building kind of custom plans for me to help me get ahead of that, right? Uh, whether it's diet, uh, exercise, medication, um, in my case, actually, um, and active monitoring of kind of the early risk factors. Maybe um, uh, maybe you're, so you guys know my girlfriend, right? Um, um, so she has a family history of cancer. So in her case, like we have a cancer prevention program where basically we focus on like what are the top five cancers 
And how do we get ahead of those? So for example, one of the top cancers is, uh, is skin cancer. So we built what's called the dermatoscope, this high resolution kind of 3D camera your doctor takes along your skin, maps out your moles and lesions so we can keep an eye on these things, right? And so, and we've got a bunch of these programs from one around COVID-19 to one around just your everyday primary care to even one that's just about early detection where we're just doing a bunch of testing, right? Your, your blood and urine, your biometrics, um, uh, your, from your colon cancer test to to even uh, mental health screening. And the idea is we just want to catch things early and help you prevent them. And so, so the idea is we do that. And oftentimes, because of the way technology works, a bunch of that stuff is in clinic. But then when you leave, we have a 24-7 uh, care team, worldwide care team, and you can communicate with them via your mobile app whenever you want. Now, you asked about COVID. So in our, in our exam rooms, when you walk in and you're talking to your doctor, there's this beautiful smart screen on the wall. It's got a model of your body. Everything we've learned has been overlaid on top. And it's kind of this interactive display for you and your doctor to kind of understand everything about you. We've actually ported that now. So you can do it from anywhere. You can do it in your browser. You can be in the middle of, uh, I don't know, the ocean for all I care, as long as you have an internet connection. And the idea is you and your doctor can kind of stay on top of what's going on with you wherever you are. So, so again, we're just trying to kind of change a little like how, how we even think about healthcare from being this super reactive thing that, that you know, is here for heroics when things go wrong to what I hope is, I hope that healthcare becomes the most boring thing possible, right? I hope that it's a little like, I don't know, antivirus on a Mac. Like, I think it's there, but I don't know because I never think about it, you know? Just effortlessly like fades into the background. Yeah, that's it. That's my hope. That's a good vision. My favorite magical forward moment, this is probably three or four years ago. Um, you know, I had like a terrible, you know, flu or something. And I just messaged forward via the app. And I was like, basically, you took me through, I think it was like an AI generated like decision tree of different symptoms, um, routed me to a doctor. And they're like, great, like, we're going to prescribe you some antibiotics. And I was like, awesome. And they're like, They'll be there in an hour. Yeah. And I was like, okay, wait a second. So I don't have to go to the doctor and infect a bunch of other people. I don't have to then like go stand in line at Walgreens and infect a bunch more people. I can just sit here. And an hour later, the med showed up with like a few pieces of candy, which was like a very lovely touch. <laughs> and like, it was just completely magical experience. Yeah. And like now I think, you know, having all of us like live through COVID and we're thinking about like how contagious things are, um, maybe actually like to go back to Jess's question, but like you've had to figure out testing. I'm guessing you're in the midst of figuring out vaccines, like yeah. walk us through some of those things. Yeah. So one of the, one of the really interesting parts was, we, you know, last March was really stressful. So we had the advantage of like we, we, we saw COVID coming very early. So we stocked up on the PPE, we stocked up on the tests, et cetera. But, you know, when the whole world was shutting down, what was it like that Friday, I think it was March 13th or something, we had to make a real decision, right? So, so you and I were all in tech, right? And so shut down offices, send everybody home. But we had to make the decision of what do we do with our actual locations? Like, do we keep them running or not? So, so the first thing is we said, we're going to stay open. But what that meant was that put a much higher bar, frankly, on our operations teams and our engineering teams, because we had to do every single thing we could to make that as safe as possible. And so on, on that Friday, when the world was shutting down um, uh, and everybody was like, I'm going home, our ops teams were like, uh-uh, we, we got to work overtime. So by, uh, so by that Friday night, we had launched uh, the first COVID screener in the United States, which means that you could go to our mobile app and basically tell us what symptoms you're, uh, you're experiencing, and we would tell you if you're at risk or not. Now you're thinking, well, how do you even know? What, what those symptoms are. And it was pretty interesting because we, we, uh, we contacted the, I think, CDC and we're like, hey, just give us, you know, what are the big indicators? What are the screeners? Like, how would you build this? And they go, oh, that's a really good idea. We should probably do that. And we're like, oh, great. So we built it ourselves. And, uh, and a week or two later, um, it's basically the one that the entire nation used. In fact, you can go to apple.com and use the exact same screener, right? Which is how, how prevalent it became. By, uh, by Sunday, we were doing full walkthroughs in all of our locations around uh, around the West Coast to say, um, to say, how do we handle somebody who comes in, which means, you know, full PPE, full kind of, uh, you know, uh, you think of these as like bunny suits or hazmat gear, right? How do we dispose of it? How do we handle blood? How do we do all these sorts of things? By Monday in the West Coast, we, we were fully open to, um, 
to uh, not only our regular members, but if you had COVID, we were actively inviting you into our location so that we could test you and care for you. And by about Tuesday or Wednesday, we were live in our East Coast locations as well. But what's really interesting is probably about a, you know, maybe that Friday, I'm about to go to bed late at night. It's I don't know, exhausting week, right? And uh, and I get a call. I'm like laying in bed, and you know me, I don't put my phone on silent. So I get a call. And, and I look at him like, what the hell is this guy doing calling? So I pick up the phone and I'm like, hi. And it's the, uh, the chancellor of UCSF. And he sounds more stressed than I've ever heard anybody. And he's like, we have no PPE. We have no gear. We have nothing. What I've heard you guys have stuff. Can you spare some? And at this point I'm thinking like, how backwards is the world of healthcare where like the guy who runs UCSF is calling a, a like little podunk startup, right? Like that's bad, right? And in fact, like what we saw every step of the way was that um, was that the the healthcare industry had a lot of trouble reacting. So for example, we, you know, I told you we have that smart screen in the exam room. We were in about, I don't know, maybe three, four weeks, we're about to like fully ramp it up for anybody uh, around, around the nation. In fact, we launched kind of in-home blood tests. We, we even launched in-home um, COVID testing until the, uh, until the FDA, uh, for some unknown reason to us, said, please stop doing that immediately, which we're still not, uh, not uh, sure why. And so, so we were pretty on top of things, which is, which is great. Um, uh, and I'm not saying this to kind of pat us on the back. I'm saying this, uh, frankly, is like kind of embarrassment for like how, how the healthcare industry reacted. And again, you look back over the last year and the biggest thing that we, we kind of congratulate ourselves for is that we launched, you know, FaceTime for doctors around this country. And I, I just think that's like really, really bad. I think it's pretty, it's pretty appalling that, you know, our members have had access to testing of all forms basically at any point during this whole process. And yet, you know, to this day, like it's hard to it's hard to get a test in San Francisco or in New York or, you know, in major cities, which kind of blows my mind. So so I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is that COVID kind of showed people like almost like how how important it is to stay ahead of our health, but also kind of that we're all unprotected and we're all kind of exposed a little, like we're realizing a little more like how brittle the healthcare system is. And so we've seen a lot of people start coming to us going, wait a minute, this stuff matters <laughs> and you seem on top of things. So, so let's kind of, uh, you know, so let's get involved. And, and I'm excited for that because my, I always go back to that Churchill quote, like never waste a good crisis, right? Like I just get really excited um, uh, when, uh, when, Yes, bad things are happening, but at least good things are coming out of it. Um, and and I think we have an opportunity to rise to the occasion. I think others do as well. And I'm kind of excited to see where that goes. I'm curious, like your thoughts on the vaccine rollout and how that's been handled both like across the country, but also in California and more specifically in San Francisco. And how have you guys been able to play a part? Yeah. So, so one of the interesting things is, you know, we really bet the farm in this country on vaccines. Um, and if you kind of just take a step back before you even get there, I would posit that the vast majority of our country could have been uh, open, whatever, nine months ago if we had actually bet the farm on testing. And so so this yeah. is really interesting, right? Like testing is not that hard to scale up, but we just, you know, we would literally rather keep San Francisco closed for a year than invest in testing, which let's be real, like, for folks like you and I, we can work from home. It's not a big deal. But but think about that restaurant worker. Think about like that day laborer. You know, if you if you look at the numbers, if you make less than seventy five thousand a year, you had a forty percent chance of being let go in the sixty days after the country shut down. I mean, that's bad, right? That's crazy. And so so I I was really disappointed, and still I'm disappointed with how much cities have been shut down. Um, uh, and it doesn't mean just open them up, you know, randomly, but it does mean that you can open them up with, uh, with large scale testing. And you can even see this, the Broad Institute in Boston has been working with some universities to do, to allow them to be open. My dad runs a university now and his university has actually been mostly open. They just require everybody to get tested every, I don't know, 48 hours or so. And like, imagine if you did that in San Francisco, then frankly, the vaccine would be important, but it'd be far, far, far less important. Like we wouldn't have had to pin our hopes on it. Yeah. We tried to wrap up uh, giving a shout out to somebody 
who uh, helped you along your journey or someone, it could even be somebody you met in the last week that you were just impressed by. I know you've also been a really prolific angel investor. We've co-invested in a handful of companies that could also be a founder that you're excited about or a company you're excited about. Um, we didn't really give you a lot of time to prep for this. Yeah, but is okay. there, <laughs> you, is there, if there's somebody that comes to mind that you want to shout out, it's a fun tradition we have. I'm going to give a shout out to, um, and maybe this one's... Uh, this person's a little better known, so uh, so maybe it's uh, not the best choice. But I'm going to give a shout-out to Marissa Mayer. And the reason I'm going to shout-out Marissa is because – so Marissa changed my views on uh, on startups fundamentally with one simple action. So we had been raising a round for Wavy, and uh, we were at the very tail end of the round. And, um, and I forget who it was, maybe Ron Conway was like, oh, you really got to talk to Marissa. You're trying to build search. She knows search. I mean, yeah, no shit. She knows search. She was, she ran search <laughs> at Google at the time. And, uh, and so I forget who, but somebody sets me up with her, probably Ron or somebody. And I go and I meet with her and, um, and she like understands what we're doing like faster than anybody ever. Right. And, um, she's really smart. And, um, and then she's, she's like, okay, fine. I'll invest. And I go, well, I, I only have like a 25K chunk left. So is that fine? Which is like kind of absurd, right? Like like you you take a step back and you think about like, is there any world in which I could ever change Marissa's net worth? No. Um, and uh, and then I said, I was I was a really precocious little child. So I go, well, I you I'll only let you invest if uh, if I get to meet with you once a month for uh, for an hour and pick your brain. And she goes, Yeah, absolutely, no problem. So, so then I leave and I'm like, wait, what world is this? Right? Like, this is kind of insane because you would normally pay Marissa an insane amount of money to be able to pick her brain <laughs> once a month, but actually she's giving me money with almost no upside to herself and willing to give her time. And I was like, I think she's the worst negotiator ever. And then, and then actually I kind of thought about it a little more and I'm like, no, actually she's just doing what all of Silicon Valley has been built upon, which is just paying it forward. So you said, Hey, you're a really prolific angel. Um, look, all my money goes to charity for me. Like I'm not doing it cause I'm, I'm trying to make a, trying to make a buck or two for me. The reason that I'm doing it is because people took a chance on me and I think it's only fair if I go take a chance on, on others and, you know, and half the time I'm investing in things where I'm like, this is almost certainly not going to work, but you know what? I'm better. I bet you're going to learn a lot doing this and by your second one and your third one and your fourth one, you're really going to change the world. And so all I care about, and I know it sounds super, uh, super cheesy and obnoxious, but all I care about is that we take the smartest minds, um, that have the most kind of potential and resources and we just put them on shit that actually matters for improving the world. And if I can do that, you know, on, off the side of my desk with some angeling, I'll do it any day of the week, you know? Right on. That is such a good note to wrap up on. Um, and we are, uh, we're super pleased also and grateful to be, you know, an angel, angels in forward and, um, to have, you know, collaborate with you in a bunch of different ways to the industry. So Adrian, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you, Adrian. Not at all. Thank you guys. And thanks for your continued support over the last what decade or so. Really <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. To keep up with Adrian, you can follow him at Twitter, at Adrian Ayun. Next up on the pod, we sit down with Tammy Sun, CEO and co-founder of Carrot, a fertility benefits company that we backed at Hashtag Angels. If you're enjoying the pod, please give us a rating or leave us a review. It helps for people to find us. Or just talk to us on Twitter. We're at Hashtag Angels. The Hashtag Angels podcast is a production of H Industries. The episode was produced and edited by Matt Herrero, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.